The United States and Israel conducted the Juniper Oak 23 multi-domain military exercise in late January. The Pentagon calls it the largest and most significant bilateral U.S.-Israel exercise in history. This exercise comes as the Islamic Republic of Iran deepens its relationship with China and Russia, continues to export terrorism, inches toward a nuclear weapon, and expands the missile means to deliver a weapon of mass destruction to its target. So what was this military exercise all about? What makes it unique and why does it matter? What messages did the administration and the Pentagon want to send and what comes next? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined by Lieutenant General Gregory Yeo. He's the Deputy Commander of U.S. Central Command, which is the Pentagon's Regional Combatant Command responsible for the Middle East. CENTCOM was established a few years after the revolution in Iran in 1979 and views deterring Iran as its number one command priority. General Guillaume received his commission from the U.S. Air Force Academy in 1989 and has commanded a flying squadron, operations group, and two flying wings. Most recently, he served as the commander of the 9th Air Force, Air Force's Central Combined Force Air Component Commander within CENTCOM. He's a senior air battle manager with more than 1,380 flying hours. I'm Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military Political Power, standing in for Cliff May. And please, you've joined us too here on Foreign Policy. Lieutenant General Gregory Guillaume, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me. Thanks, Brad. Good to see you again. And, and thanks for your interest. Oh, absolutely. Definitely interested. I'm excited to dig into the details of the recent uh, Juniper Oak 23 military exercise and some of the issues related to that. But first, I'd like to uh, talk just a little bit about your background, career, and current position. I understand you grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm from Tucson, the son of an Air Force officer. His last several assignments were in the Tucson area, and my mom is from Tucson originally, so that's where I spent most of my time growing up certainly from high school years on. Went to the Air Force Academy, of course, followed them in football, but big follower of Clemson Tigers. Any spare time I have, that's usually where I'm focusing that. And then, uh, you know, throughout the career in the Air Force, have been a lot of it in the CENTCOM AOR at various levels, you know, from uh, junior officer through uh, command. And prior to being here at CENTCOM, I was an air component commander for a couple of years out of Qatar. So really uh, enjoy the ties to the Middle East and working the nation's issues with our Middle East partners. Well, that's a great, effective and quick summary of your background. I was stationed years ago at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, when I was attending the U.S. Military Intelligence Officer Advanced Course. And we'd drive up to Tucson from time to time and really enjoyed that part of the country. But uh, we'll talk more about that over uh, coffee sometime. But, (laughs) you know, yeah, you mentioned your last position uh, before this one was as commander of of AFSEN or U.S. Force. Air Forces in, in, in the Central Command Theater. Um, and you were, you were there from August 2020 to, to July 22, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's quite an important position. Uh, I'd love to hear just a tad more about that quickly, if you're willing. Well, the uh, the, the current commander, G- General Grinkowitz, uh, was at CENTCOM uh, as the J3 before. So he also has a lot of uh, shared experience in the region. And, and what that position does is it's the uh, service component, so responsible for all uh, Air Force activities in, in CENTCOM, uh, but also it's a functional component as the Air Component Commander, which means it's joint. So uh, Navy, Naval Air Power, Army Power, Air Force, uh, U.S. Air Force, and plus the uh, partner uh, nations that contribute air power all fall under the 
the Ninth Air Force commander, absent commander, who is also the CFAC, the Combined Forces Air Component Commander. And um, uh, it's a it's a great and rewarding uh, position. Get to work with top air forces from around the world and 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 their airmen. And a lot of it is focused at the CAOC in at Al Yadid, where we have members of uh, 21 nations as well as the U.S. in that uh, facility, uh, planning, executing, and and debriefing uh, all air operations uh, for for CENTCOM in the Middle East. That's that's incredible, and and of course, if I'm not mistaken, you were in that that absent position during the uh, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where, I, from my perspective, uh, yeah, the Air Force played a heroic role in in in, with, in withdrawing our forces and getting our some of our Afghan partners out of Kabul and and, and trying to save as many lives as possible. So I, I, I uh, that that uh, that was quite a quite an endeavor. Well, well, thanks. Maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, soon exactly, on. exactly. But you're right. There was some great. Uh, uh, just really heroic activities by by a lot of uh, people from different countries and services. Yeah, and, and I was really proud to be working with them at yeah, that time. Absolutely. Well, let's jump in uh, just for the sake of time. Uh, let's just jump into your current position as Deputy Commander of U.S. Central Command. Um, and uh, you know, just for the sake of time, uh, for some for the listeners, you know, Central Command is one of the uh, Pentagon's geographic combatant commands. That's the way the Pentagon organizes kind of the world and its efforts around the world, if you will, covering. Uh, uh, you know, basically a large swath of, of what we think of the Middle East and a little bit more. Um, and as in that role, you oversaw the the uh, recent uh, Juniper Oak 23 military exercise. Um, and, and I want to dive into that in a moment. Um, but before we do, let's just talk very quickly about kind of, uh, you know, the headaches in the region. Um, according to the March 15, 2022 CENTCOM posture statement to Congress, Iran is, quote, the greatest single day-to-day threat to regional security and stability, unquote, in the CENTCOM area of responsibility. How do you, uh, how do you, General, and, and how does CENTCOM see the Iranian threat and how is it evolving? Well, what you just uh, quoted is is certainly accurate. You know, of course, we watch the uh, Iranian threat in the in the theater very closely uh, every day. Uh, one of the command priorities is uh, to deter Iran and then defeat the VEOs, the violent extremist organizations. And then when you talk about deterring Iran and defeating VEOs, really between them are a lot of the proxy groups that are sponsored by Iran that uh, that uh, routinely uh, attack U.S. and, and coalition uh, locations and personnel in the in the theater. So uh, it it is certainly the most single destabilizing um, entity in the <clears throat> in the Middle East. And uh, you know from start to finish of the day, which was CENTCOM, there really is no start to finish of the day. They they kind of uh, flow one to, to the other. Uh, it, it certainly takes a lot of our attention. For sure, for sure. And the and the same posture statement, as you'll know better than me, talked about their pursuit of regional hegemony and and the, their use of uh, of terrorist organizations, as you just touched on their their massive ballistic missile force and how they're on the cutting edge of uh, the development of aerial maritime unmanned systems. And the list goes on and on. And we've seen them trying to ship weapons to the Houthis recently, some of which have thankfully been interdicted because of the great work of Central Command and some of our partners. And we know. Iran is helping to arm 
Russia and Russia is using those weapons in Ukraine. And we see a growing relationship between Iran and China and the list goes on and on and on. But enough uh, on the the headache. Let's let's move to Juniper Oak 23 exercise. Um, What, uh, you know, General, can you talk about how this this, the planning for this exercise came together? When did it start and and how did it come together? I'd kind of like to get to the, the genesis of this exercise. Sure. There's always with any of our partners, we have a, a robust exercise program and some of it uh, longer range and some sh- shorter term, more tactical types of exercises. And as over the last uh, year and a half to two years, as um, Israel transitioned from uh, partnering with UCOM and uh, to partnering with Central Command, uh, we looked for uh, future exercise opportunities. Some we inherited that were run very well by uh, European command, you know, the Juniper series, Juniper Cobra, Juniper Falcon. And uh, we've been working on a transition plan for CENTCOM to assume responsibilities for those. Uh, For example, next week we'll be out there uh, conducting Juniper Mm. Falcon. Uh, When we looked at, uh, but those are kind of long range. Uh, A a lot of times they don't involve active forces, and we wanted to see what we could do somewhere between what the air component, for example, does very frequently. We'll, we'll send maybe a force ship right. over to Israel, work with them closely, just as they do with other partners uh, throughout the region, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, uh, as, as two quick examples, uh, Jordan. But um, not quite to the the, the big scale uh, of the Juniper, uh, Cobra and Falcon series. And so we wanted to, and, and Israel was very interested in doing the same thing uh, with us, and we were trying to figure out how to, to work that in. And uh, we noticed a couple of com- uh, um, events that were going to uh, confluence in, in, in January. And uh, as we looked at this in November, uh, that was a bomber task force mm. mission, which are routinely done by uh, U.S. Uh, STRATCOM and the U.S. Air Force to send uh, bombers uh, all over the world. We had one of those missions coming to our yeah. region. Uh, we knew with Juniper uh, Falcon coming up and the transition from uh, European command that we needed to test our command and control uh, and coordination between the U.S. forces and Israeli forces uh, because we would need a new entity. Uh, UCOM used uh, JTF, Joint Task Force Israel, and uh, our mission is a little different than UCOM's. And so we wanted to use that as a basis for our CENTCOM forward Israel And we wanted to try it out before the first exercise, which is uh, Falcon coming up here in a a week. And then uh, finally, we wanted to do it uh, very jointly. And if we could use cross-combatant command capabilities and the availability of the uh, USS uh, George Herbert Walker Bush Carrier Strike Group looked like they might be in the part of the med where if uh, world situation permitted, we could uh, borrow them uh, for a short period of time and uh, conduct this exercise. And so when you took those three requirements, it all pushed it towards, uh, you know, in the 20s of um, January. And, you know, that's ultimately where we executed mostly 23 through 26 January were the were the big execution days for Juniper Oak. But because we started talking about it in November, you know, that's really, really short. As I mentioned, most of these uh, exercises have an annual training uh, or uh, development plan where you have initial planning conference, several intermediate planning conferences and a final planning conference, and then you actually do it. 
but we kind of merged all this into a two-month period, which required some hyper-planning uh, between the components forward uh, with their counterparts, um, and then between us and the headquarters uh, So and, and the components. And so I uh, held a VTC every morning. Video teleconference, yeah. With, with all of our components to make sure that uh, all of, you know, everything was moving on track, any problems that we needed to solve that I could solve uh, directly with my counterpart, the deputy Chad uh, or chief of defense for the uh, Israeli uh, defense forces. And and it actually worked out really, really well. That's one of the lessons learned that, that came is that the smaller exercises that we've done over time uh, really set the foundation for us to expand this to a much larger scale, even on a fast timeline, uh, because we had some pretty uh, um, strong and disciplined uh, coordination and planning uh, processes that we're able to fall back on. Well, what a great overview of kind of the lead up to it. So what I'm hearing you say, just in summary, and feel free to push back or, or correct anything I say here, is that, you know, when when Israel trans uh, was transferred from European command, UCOM, to Central Command, there was kind of a longstanding desire to do something big in, in terms of a bilateral exercise. And as you said, you had kind of a confluence of events come together where you said, hey, we could not only do it, but do something quite significant. Let's see if we can pull this together relatively quickly. I mean, is that essentially what happened here? That is. And then there are a couple of other factors that were yeah. important that uh, we, we could build on there. One is uh, at, at any time, we'd like to show that the U.S. can very quickly yeah. uh, deploy, employ and redeploy forces across the world, even when uh, you know very focused in other uh, regions simultaneously. So obviously uh, a lot of uh, commitment to the Pacific and, and commitment to uh, U- European command d- uh, due to the Ukraine yeah. crisis. And uh, I think this shows, demonstrates uh, that that the U.S. is still capable of uh, amassing a large force, uh, which hopefully uh, deters adversaries, and then at the same time assures our partners in the in the uh, in the Middle East that uh, the U.S. is very committed to not only the defense of Israel but the defense of the region as a whole. And we can quickly act on that. that. That's such an important point. And I just, I want to foot stomp that for the listeners, just from my perspective, is that, you know, sometimes you hear uh, people in the region and elsewhere saying, oh, the U.S. is leaving, the U.S. military is leaving. And of course, you know, the, the, the quantity of U.S. forces in the Middle East changes from time to time. And of course, there was the Afghanistan withdrawal. We'll set aside that debate for a, another time. But the bottom line is the U.S. maintains a really robust and, 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 and well-designed posture in the Middle East that serves American interests. And more than that, as I think I hear you saying, we retain an unmatched ability. We, the United States of America, retain an unmatched ability to flow in additional forces to secure our interests and support contingency operations. And it seems like this Juniper Oak exercise demonstrated that in spades. Yeah, thank you. That was one of our goals, and in in, in our uh, lessons learned in Hot Wash, uh, we feel that we that we achieved that uh, while still meeting some pretty uh, impressive operational level and tactical level goals at the same time. So we didn't just deploy for the sake right. of deploying, as we'll talk about yeah. when we uh, uh, talk specifics yeah. about the exercise. We did some very very uh, complex. Uh, training mm-hmm. with a highly uh, capable partner, and uh, certainly each of these of our two countries left the exercise with a higher level of readiness than That's we great. entered it, which is always yes. desirable. 
and then it's a and it's a great platform for us to to use as as we work across uh, with our other partners in the Middle East. For example, this week we're starting the Spears of Victory uh, exercise with the uh, uh, Kingdom of Saudi hmm. Arabia up at Dahran at their Air Warfare Center, and so we have uh, a number of forces that will be operating air, primarily air and air defense uh, forces. And then uh, I think the next one we'll do is uh, Magic Carpet with Oman. And, uh, you know, these are, are regularly uh, scheduled opportunities with our partners. But I think that we're taking lessons from each of these exercises and we can apply them to the next one and, and for the benefit of not only the U.S., but all of our, of our partners. That, that's great. The readiness of the individual forces, their ability to operate together, the fancy term being interoperability and sending, creating a more um, unified and capable coalition to deter aggression uh, from Tehran and its terror proxies and others. Uh, that, that's outstanding. I, I got to say, Spears of Victory, Magic Carpet, Juniper Oak. You know, the Pentagon loves its cool names for exercises, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the uh, Juniper Oak is 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 uh, attributable to us, but uh, Spears of Victory was is named by the uh, Royal Saudi Air Force, and Magic Carpet is it was named by the Royal uh, Amani Air Force. We'll have to take a, a poll and see who thinks the coolest name is Juniper Oak. Though when I first saw that, I was like, I get it, oak, strong, durable, reliable. But I mean, it's it's two different trees. I mean, come on, we got <laughs> yeah, that is that's true. Yeah, yeah. because we 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 wanted to stick with the juniper theme because it's yeah. got in the cobra, and yeah. then uh, yeah, so I'll talk to our J. Three yeah, yeah, yeah. No, hey, I'm, I don't need no <laughs> criticism from the cheap seats. I just think it's fun. Anyway, okay. But it does it does flow pretty well. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. Good. I like it. Jude Broke sounds very strong. That's good. Okay, so um, back to back to seriousness and details here. So the um, let's talk about the I, I, let's let's talk about the, the nuts and bolts of the exercise in general. So um, what U.S. forces participated, and feel free to be as detailed as you want, and what Israeli forces participated. That's, well, let me go macro yeah, uh, with, with just the big numbers, and yeah. then I'll go into some specifics. Sure. Uh, there are uh, a total of about 7,400 total forces, roughly uh, 1,400 Israeli and uh, the remaining 6,000 from the U.S. Of those 6,000, uh, roughly 5,500 were from the uh, carrier strike group and remained in the East Med near Israel. And the other 500 were actually at various bases in Israel, a total of 10 different locations, uh, with a couple of them, a Neva team having the most and then um, and, and then spread out. So that's that in itself, I think, is very important because usually at an exercise, you might go to one location, one bit, bed down location. Uh, but the fact that we were spread out at, at multiple places um, increased the complexity of the logistics. Um, but it also increased the number of touch points we could have with our partners and uh, the, the number of opportunities to get face-to-face -face, uh, briefings, debriefings, and side-by-side -side execution. Uh, the specifics on the aircraft, uh, we had about a, 140 aircraft total that were involved in, in throughout the four or five days. And uh, 100 of those came from the U.S., the majority from the uh probably two thirds of those from the um, carrier strike group, maybe more. And then 40 from the uh, 40 to 42 from the Israeli Air Force. The types range from uh, both countries brought F-35s, uh, multiple fourth gen and uh, fighters, they had AC-130s. Uh, both countries uh, participated with Apaches, which are AH-64s. 
we had the KC-46 came out, which is our newest tanker. And then the Israelis provided two of their Boeing 707 tankers, and they operated in parallel orbits out over the East Med to, to feed the fight, if you will. Uh, we had space in, involved. We had uh, Army ground forces that uh, conducted uh, both surface-to-surface fires uh, training, as well as um, small team uh, urban warfare training. Again, both of those side-by-side with Israeli counterparts. Uh, We had special operators operating. And then we had uh, 12 ships, six from the carrier strike group and six from uh, the Israeli Navy that operated side-by-side and conducted both uh, AOMSW, which stands for Air Operations and the Maritime Support Warfare, and which uh, is essentially which, that was essentially t- going after service surface targets, both with the rotary wing or helicopters, and also uh, naval surface warfare. If I'm not mistaken, correct? That's exactly right. And yeah. it's usually um, with the AOMSW, and so I, I, I clarified the acronym once, but <laughs> no, no, go for it. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna have to stick with the <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, now. Yeah. Uh, but that's a lot of the small craft uh, that, that you might see that could be harassing uh, or, or in danger to to our craft. And you're exactly right. Uh, and of course, this- that's a favorite, uh, uh, as you know better than me, that's a favorite tactic employed by the Islamic Republic of Iran to harass uh, shipping in, in international shipping lanes. And so that's that's a good thing to practice, I'd imagine. We used uh, the, the Apaches, as you mentioned, to, to do live fire on, they're called killer tomatoes. They're these uh, big red targets that they put out afloat. And uh, we, we do the killer they, tomatoes they, move. I have to ask. Well, they um, they can, but the, mostly they just flow with the, the, uh, the current, the current or they or they can put them on something that, that moves. And in this case, I think they were all fairly stationary. All right. And then, as you mentioned, we also did a gun X. Uh, coordinated fires between the different uh, surface ships. Next time, you're going to have to make sure the killer tomatoes can move at about 40 miles per hour to make it more challenging yeah. for the. Uh, the, <laughs> the I'm just, I'm just yeah. saying. I'll, I'll look for that next exercise. Um. So, so what a what a great overview. Thank you. So, all in sum, right? Uh, CENTCOM and the Pentagon and the administration is saying this is the largest and most significant bilateral military exercise in U.S. and Israel history. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is. And and both largest in terms of, of uh, numbers and also largest in terms of complexity by involving, uh, you know, all of the domains and some complex missions within the domains simultaneously. So uh, we, we did a, a CSAR, which is Combat Search and Rescue, which is both of both countries provided helicopters that worked in tandem to go pick up crew members that we had put out in the desert uh, and, and to, to pick up, you know, find, fix. Uh, rescue and 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 uh, egress. We talked about the AOM SW and the GUNX. Um, we did uh, what, what's called um, the urban ops training. I, I think I mentioned. But yeah, we yeah. Did the high Mars simultaneously mm-hmm. with with high, our the high, high mobility artillery rocket systems. These are the systems that have gained a great notoriety in in Ukraine, where they've been used with great effectiveness against invading Russian forces. That's right. And, and yes, yeah, tremendous accuracy. And then the Israelis use their MLRS, which is the multi launch rocket system, which yeah. is the tracked version, more or less, of, of the HIMARS. Exactly. That's right. And then uh, and then in, within the, the large force employment or the airstrike, which was on the, the last day the, of the LifeFly on the 25th, um, we had the strategic bombers, which took off 
out of the U.S. about 17 hours prior to their time on target. And as they, you know, multiple refuelings, as they flowed into the Eastern Med, uh, gathered in front of them was a, uh, a seed, which is suppression of enemy air defenses, package of Israeli and U.S. F-35s that went from uh, feet wet, which over the water, over Israel and down into the range and defeated multiple uh, surface to air emitters to clear the path. And then right behind the F-35s and in concert with the F-35s, we had uh, uh, F-18s from the carrier Super Hornets, along with F-15s and F-16s from the Israeli Air Force that defeated a fourth gen plus plus threat array of about uh, 10 aircraft, paved the way for the B-52 to come in without having to spin or orbit and deliver uh, all of their weapons, uh, live weapons, uh, that they'd carried from the U.S. on time, on target, uh, to to the second, which was uh, extremely complex. And if they couldn't have gotten through the, uh, you know, the air threat or the surface threat, we would have had to spin them, you know, and it would have yeah, been a yeah. lesson learned. But, but we didn't, but we didn't need to do that. And then behind the B-52s, we had three waves of fighters that came in with various types of weapons and dropped on uh, live drops on the targets in the, uh, in the in the target area. So we had standoff weapons that were simulated that would have been uh you'll have to uh, i'll just say the acronym yeah yeah <laughs> no you're doing great but we had the, yeah. the the t-lams which are tomahawk land attack yep. vessels so, yep. uh, that were simulated fired from the ships and then we had J jasm which is a joint air surface surface munition a, a longer range munition so we 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 did those and we graded ourselves on those uh and and did all the planning and and, and all of that and then we came in and did the seed the OCA, which is offensive counter air, to clear out all of the uh, enemy air and then the strikes themselves. And so even in that was very complex. And that was just one part of the four days of, of complex operations. What, what a great rundown. I mean, just I, I hope the listeners heard what you said there. Uh, B-52 bombers taking off from the U.S., flying those many hours, synchronized, coordinated, joined up by American Israeli fighters defeating uh, enemy air defense, going in and doing multiple waves attacks on targets. One might imagine how those kind of skills would be useful. I'll just leave it at that. I, I do have to ask, General, why were there not B-2s involved in the exercise? Well, uh, we, we didn't pursue them just because, uh, like I said, we had the bomber task force mm -hmm. was was already lined up to, to give us the dates. And, and, and those are assigned. Uh, they can be any type a, a bomber. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't specify and they just happened to be B-52. Okay. Can you speak very quickly, if you wouldn't mind, about the role of the KC-46s? This is something I had called for, you know, last April to say, hey, let's send KC-46s to the Middle East for to for dynamic force employment purposes, practicing our ability to be unpredictable and also Air Force agile combat employment purposes. And by the way, also to help the Israelis get ready for the receipt of their own KC-46s. What role did the 46s play in the exercise? Who'd they refuel specifically? Yeah, they played a, uh, a a key role. They uh, flew flew in in a dynamic force employment as as uh, or DFE manner, as you mentioned. Uh, they ended up pairing up with the uh, F-35s as they came in from Europe. Landed at the same base, uh, were able to quickly brief and turn uh, the next uh, either one or two days later. I can't, I can't recall right now. And uh, two full. Uh, aircraft passed several hundred thousand pounds of gas to all the, the, the U.S. strikers, 
they did not refuel uh, any of the uh, Israeli strikers because they already had the Boeing 707s lined up uh, for them. Uh, but while on the ground, they were able to do a lot of exchanges with the uh, Boeing yeah. 707 tanker crews. Yeah. Uh, different fighter crews were able to, to look at the airplane and we could do some face-to-face um, uh, -face exchanges there. The airplanes uh, performed magnificently. Uh, you know, came in, did the did the mission, uh, came back, landed, did the debrief, and were able to follow on to the next uh, AMC and Transcom Transportation Command, U.S. Transportation yeah. Command, yeah, yeah. tasking uh, uh, that that they that they had, which which fit, you know, as a microcosm of, of our overall goal, which is quickly get them in theater, employ and redeploy, so we have forces just in time for need, not just in case we need them. Uh, so the KC-46s uh, did a great job there. Plus, as you've probably told your followers before, the uh, KC-46 is a huge advance over yes, the KC-10 sure. and the KC-135, which are, uh, you know, our, our workhorses there with with data links and other avionics that, that just uh, make it a fantastic uh, airplane. So it's nice to have it in the AOR just for a, even if it was just for a couple of days. Absolutely. I'm excited for more and more of them to be fielded to our forces, uh, to uh, to Jap Japan, our, our great ally in the Indo-Pacific, where I know you served as well at one point, and, and ultimately to our uh, Israeli allies in the Middle East. And, and I'm so glad to hear that Israeli crews were able to spend some time on the aircraft to learn so that they can scrunch the time from when they receive theirs and be able to use them in combat operations. And for my part, I, I do hope that in a future uh, training exercise that uh, we'll have an opportunity to refuel Israeli aircraft on American KC-46s. That would seem to be good for us and good for them. So I don't know if we can be able to work that into a future exercise. Um, uh, yeah, I hope to. Yeah, exactly. I think that would be good for both sides in my, from my perspective. Um, very good. The, uh, the, what do you think, you know, just, you know, some, I, I want to keep well within the military lane where you're comfortable, but what do you think uh, messages were sent from this exercise, broadly speaking, to Israel? to Arab partners and, and to any adversaries. You want to just talk about kind of the, the messages you think that are being sent here, or does it speak for itself? Uh, it probably speaks for itself. The the ones that I, I took from it, uh, we've, we've discussed, Brad, different points, but I'll just pull them together. One is that the uh, U.S.'s uh, commitment is ironclad to the region, and we can very quickly uh, bring forces, execute, and redeploy uh, to, to help promote stability or respond if necessary in, in the region. I think our, our partners across the board saw that, and uh, certainly the Israelis uh, saw it as well. Uh, I, I think it showed uh, our partners and probably our adversaries that we can operate effectively at a high level simultaneously in multiple domains. Uh, when we do an exercise, it doesn't have to be only a surface-to-surface -surface exercise or a land maneuver exercise, uh, air defense exercise. We can do all of those at the same time with a high level of complexity with our partners. And I think that that's something I, I, I would expect um, our, our friends and potential adversaries to, to notice. And then uh, not as immediately evident, but what I hope becomes evident over the coming days is that uh, the, the uh, lessons learned are exportable to all of our partners. We all operate with very similar systems, uh, with very similar goals. And so therefore the lessons that we gain in an exercise in, in Jordan or Qatar or Saudi Arabia or Israel are all transferable and applicable to other parts uh, of the region. And, the, and we're all willing to share to, to make us 
better because certainly the sum of our parts is, is certainly going to make the whole much, much stronger. And, and that's always one of our goals in, in any exercise. So I'd say those are probably the, um, the, the big takeaways that I hope both uh, friends and potential adversaries saw. Well, for sure. Well said. Some of the listeners may know, uh, General, that the U.S. military maintains a, a stockpile in Israel called the War Reserve Stock Allies Israel. I'm curious, was any equipment pulled from that stockpile for use in the uh, in this exercise? No, it wasn't. Okay. No, it wasn't. Uh, so there's that stockpile. And then the U.S., you know, of course, keeps uh, readiness material all, all across the region that the various uh, component commanders can can tap into if they need to. Uh, but we didn't need to access any of what we call the uh, WRM or war readiness um, material. Uh, we didn't have to tap into any of that for this exercise. Okay. My my sense, and you know, push back if you want to, is that you know, I, I think the fact that we forward station uh, uh, weapons and equipment around the world is obviously helpful. We know that some of our stockpiles we used extensively during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? It allows the equipment to already be there. And in a contingency, U.S. forces can fall in on it, quickly draw that equipment and employ it in a contingency, which which saves time and makes us more uh, agile. Uh, and so I, I think stationing uh, that stockpile in Israel, uh, like other ones around around the region, around the world, makes sense. And there's also some arrangements by which Israel could potentially use it in a contingency. Uh, what is, you know, based on, you know, just kind of zooming out from the exercise, um, you know, as deputy commander of CENTCOM, do you believe that the stockpile in Israel uh, consists? of the weapons and equipment that you need? Is it is it there in sufficient quantities? Is it well-maintained and modern? What is your general assessment of that stockpile there in Israel? The quality is, is all high. The, the I have no concerns about the, the quantity or the, or, the, or the content, but w- what I would just say is, is that we're always looking to adjust and, and move uh, different types of different locations around the world to make sure that we can respond globally where, where and when we, we need to. And, uh, you know, Israel's just one of many, some floating, some static and, and, and such uh, across the world. So we're always moving and cross, cross-leveling uh, there. So, so no concerns, certainly no concerns with the, um, the, the quality of it or, or the, the condition uh, that you mentioned. Okay. Do you see value in in every now and then, every few years, and in, in, in as part of an exercise and pulling that equipment out, so that if you have to do it in a contingency, it's not the first time that, that you've done it. Particularly doing it alongside our Israeli partners. Yes, I, I think there is value in, in doing that um, because it's a fairly complex system. Right. You know, there's a, right. a lot of stuff in a lot of warehouses, and and it's not always located in in one location. You know, uh, to go back to your opening comments during the uh, uh, Afghanistan withdrawal, we, we were, you know, that's something that we had to do uh, quite a bit is to to pull, um, you know, just to bed down the uh, evacuees at, you know, Ramstein and, and yeah. Al-Yadid and, and other places uh, going into those stocks. So being able, knowing that they're in, the, in good condition, exactly where they are, set, set them up. And then once it's done, clean it up and put them back in. Uh, it w- was an operational training, but we do do uh, we do conduct uh, uh, you know exercises and 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 such to make sure that that um, the materials 
in the condition we need where we where we need it and we can get to it when we need to yeah it's it's my sense that um that the islamic republic of iran wants to divide and distract its adversaries as much as possible so when it sees tension between israelis and arabs or arabs and americans that that from their perspective that's a good thing so conversely right i think it's in our interest to create as much unity as possible among Arab Americans, Israelis, and Arabs. That's why one of the reasons why I was so glad to see Israel move to, frankly, where it belongs within Central Command, and why I'm so glad to see some of the exercises, some of the maritime exercises we've seen that included both Israelis and Arab countries like the Emiratis and Bahrain. You know, as you look forward, General, as you know, Deputy Commander, U.S. Central Command, Juniper Oak, Juniper Cobra, Juniper Falcon. I'm thinking of Noble Dina exercise. I'm thinking of the Iron Union exercise in the UAE. Do you see opportunities to invite Arabs to these Israeli exercises and invite Israelis to the exercise we do with the Arabs to try to have a more more American Israeli Arab uh, combined military exercise that improve the readiness of each of the militaries, improve their ability to operate together and send a more positive deterrent message? Is that is that a goal that you have and are we moving toward it? Yeah, that's a that certainly is a, a generic or a general goal that, that we have uh, is to maximize the benefit of our bilateral and when it makes sense, multilateral exercises. And, and some of those are tabletop exercises and some of those are, are field exercises using uh, equipment. And I think in the days, months and years ahead, you'll see more and more bilateral exercises that might not even involve the U.S., might be between different partners. Yeah. And then uh, certainly on the, as the, the multilaterals uh, starting to see two, three, four, five and more uh, countries participating together to some degree. So that is a that, that's certainly a goal. We're seeing some of that in uh, with, for instance, uh, in the Navy, as, as yes. you know, uh, uh, in the maritime, uh, we see that quite frequently with um, dozens of, of countries. Uh, to include Israel. And then in the air, you know, there are two uh, high-level air warfare centers that, that we work with quite frequently, UAE and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's. And, uh, you know, they have multilateral exercises, and we'd like to see the uh, participants there grow in the in the coming years as well. And then keeping the bilateral relationships going, as I talked about with the various, um, you know, just in this, what, one-month period to three three different uh, bilateral exercises where we can work one on one with our partners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. The uh you mentioned the bomber task forces earlier and for the listeners, you know, that's where we'll send a number of of bombers, often B52s around the region and as they th- they kind of circumnavigate the the region, you know, the various uh partners and allies will send up fighters to escort them. A, a, a recent one I remember the Israelis did that and then then later the Saudis sent up their fighters to escort it in, in other countries as well. And to me, that just sent a really positive message that, you know, hey, we, we're looking for peace, we're looking for stability, but we have the means to uh, defend our interests. And that, you know, here you have in one exercise that, you know, not at the same time, but you had Israeli fighters escorting American bombers and you had Saudi fighters. And, and I think that's a, a wonderful tiptoe toward where it's in our interest, all of our interests to go. And I, I'm so glad to hear that, that that's a priority for you. Um, you know, one, one kind of, yeah, go ahead. On those bomber, on those bomber task forces, um, you know, General, General Grinkwitz is, is planning those now and has done, um, he he may even have, I think his most recent one had more, but the last one that I was associated with, we had nine different countries that escorted the B-52 through the region. Um, and, 
you know, handing handing off country to country to country as the as as the aircraft went. And so it, it sends a powerful message, uh, but it but it also has valuable valuable training that we hope you know for a combined defense of a, of a region and letting the partners know that, that we, we would certainly trust them to protect our aircraft just as they would probably trust us to, to defend theirs. Uh, so, so we get a lot out of those those bomber task force missions. That's outstanding. You know, we people like us have been talking about a regional security architecture f- forever. You know, and it, it's easier said than done, of course. Um, you know, what I'm talking about is, you know, is in our security architecture. Not, you know, not a NATO or anything like that, but just you know, a means by which Americans, Israelis, and Arab partners. Um, start to share intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, start to build combined air and missile defense capability, all for the purpose of not of aggression, but of, of, of defending, deterring and, and defeating aggression. Um, how are we doing in, in the progress toward more of a regional security architecture in the Middle East? It's something that is uh, high on our on our list. Uh, we have a number of conferences run by our J5, yeah. uh, you know, across the, the, the region. In fact, they just finished one last week, and there'll be a higher level uh, one coming up here, you know, very soon, where uh, we talk about in the individual domains, regional cooperation in the maritime domain, land, uh, air, and then we hope to grow that into uh, cyber and and space in the future. Mm -hmm. And then, like you talked about, the overall uh, picture. Uh, I think there are some common areas uh, we see it day to day in the maritime where there's yes. a, a um, that that common uh, approach. Uh, we're seeing it more in the air. Uh, General Brinkowitz uh, is is now leading a thing called the um, uh, you know an Air Chiefs Conference where they talk about common interests and and how we can share information and uh, capability. And I think you know we're going to look to I think the best place to unite is with, with defensive systems. And so we'll look uh, to expand, you know, counter UAS, uh, shared air picture. Uh, those types of endeavors, I think, would be very, very uh, positive because they ultimately benefit everybody in a defensive way. Um, and and so we'll look to pursue those. And if our partners are interested uh, in, in doing that, uh, we would like to advance those initiatives. That's great to hear. And uh, you mentioned the maritime, which reminds me, of course, of the Combined Maritime Forces, uh, which is a 34-member nation organization focused on, you know, freedom of navigation and and regional stability in a wonderful way. And 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 uh, a lot of our Arab partners are are a part of that. Um, you know, it has four combined task forces, as you know better than me, but the listeners may not know. You know, combined task force 150 that focuses on the Gulf of Oman, Indian Ocean, 151 on counter piracy, 152 on the Arabian Gulf, and then 153, the uh, maritime security in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And if I'm not mistaken, Egypt is currently leading that. Um, and 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 we've seen a lot of tangible uh, results of, of the of the combined maritime forces generally, and also specifically combined task force one fifty three in the Red Sea. Yeah, you're exactly right. There, there's uh, so much evidence each day of of, of advances uh, out there in the maritime. Uh, Vice Admiral Cooper and uh, Navsent, the Fifth Fleet, doing tremendous work, and as you said, with a number a number of partners uh, with both. Uh, Manned and unmanned uh, systems. That's probably one you'll want to talk to him about. Is yeah, task yeah exactly. Fifty nine, exactly. Uh, doing some really, really fantastic work. You know, speaking of the maritime, if I could uh, yeah, hijack please. 
just for a second. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't mention is uh, after all of the Juniper Oak, we did the hot wash, uh, uh, the combined hot wash on the carrier. Yes. That, w- that was something the Israelis had been interested in for a long time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it just made sense with all yeah. of, you know, the, How cool. the large number not, of, of... Not every, courses. you know, a hot way, and for the listeners, I didn't mean to interject there, John, but for a hot wash, it's, in the Army, we'd call that an after-action review. It's just the idea that after you do a, a training exercise, you get together and you talk about what went well, what didn't go well, and what you can learn and how you can do better next time. And so you're saying from the, no, the uh, Juniper... Uh, oak exercise, the hot wash or the after action review that I just described happened on a, the USS, uh, the USS George HW Bush aircraft carrier, right? That's, that's correct. That's pretty so cool. Yeah. yeah. The, the thorough debrief for each of the mission areas that we talked about before was conducted prior. And then the, uh, the facts were sent forward to the, the main planners and then general Grinkowitz ran the, uh, the, the debrief for the, um, Israeli Chad. Uh, Chief of Defense uh, General Halevi and General Carilla, um, and we were out on the on the ship, so we got a tour of of the of the capability of the ship, and then uh, spent over an hour talking about the individual elements and of, of the debrief and and what we need to see from the future. Uh, one of the takeaways there is we we see future, and I know this is one of your questions, future Juniper Oaks. Uh, certainly not necessary to go to the size and scale of, of this one. Um, but we do want to keep them multi-domain and then where we where we go even deeper. And so where we were combined. Hopefully bring in more partners, right? Uh, it's, uh, in the, in yeah. Certainly, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're always looking to, when it makes sense, go go multilateral or use this as a as a framework or a template for other parts of the region if, if partners are interested in doing that. It was really uh, it was a really neat demonstration. And I think anybody. Uh, Everybody uh, of your listeners would be really proud of the shipmates and sailors on the on the bush. They they were they were great uh, to 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 show our partners that much uh, professionalism in, in just a short period of time. It, it had quite an impact on on the Israelis and certainly on the U.S. personnel as well. Outstanding. As we uh, move to conclude here, General, you've been so gracious with your time. Let me let me just do a, a lightning round if I could, and you can take them however you want them. You know, uh, so so someone sitting in Los Angeles or Seattle or or Kansas City or New York saying, "Okay, we're talking about the Middle East here." I thought, you know, I thought that China and your and Russia are the rage. Why why should we continue to have a U.S. military presence in the Middle East, or why should we retain the ability? Why does the Middle East matter to your average American? How would you answer that question? Well, there there are so many reasons, but but one is uh, it's the confluence of of multiple regions, you and the strategic competition is is often centered there. So not only do you have, uh, you know, there's there's some long standing hotspots in the Middle East itself, but there is uh, uh, Russian and Chinese influence uh, in the region uh, that certainly deserves attention and uh, stability in the Middle East for so many reasons. You know the 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 smooth flow of commerce and energy, uh, you know, through the region, just just to name one, uh, make it a global priority for stability in the in the Middle East. Uh, so, so that's 
that that's probably the, the the first thing that I would say there. That's a great answer. Yeah, no, I mean, as, uh, to use the cliche, uh, things in the, uh, problems in the Middle East tend not to stay there, as we've learned painfully as a country. Um, you know, resilient, unfortunately, resilient terrorism threats. Uh, people there that would like to kill us here, and if we don't forward deploy our troops between them and us, then they're going to, it's going to be easier for them to do that. Continue nuclear proliferation challenges, obviously with Iran, energy interests. And by the way, as you said so well there, great power competition is a global competition. It happens everywhere, including the Middle East. And if the United States leaves the Middle East, I would say that among those smiling and waving goodbye will be the Chinese because they're moving in. Um, and, and I suspect you're seeing that day to day. Absolutely. And, you know, we look at the uh, national defense strategy and, and uh, there, there are priorities therein, but certainly the uh, I think the best way to keep the national defense strategy on track is to have a stable uh, Middle East. And uh, so we we work really hard each day to to provide that to our country. Exactly. And if we want to do what we need to do in the Indo-Pacific, a major new war in the Middle East would not be helpful to that. So if we can make smaller investments now and make sure our deterrence is strong, then maybe we can prevent that from happening. Well, let me conclude uh, by saying uh, thanking you sincerely for your distinguished and continued service to our country. Thanks to your family as well for the sacrifices they make. And thanks to the men and women you lead who keep us safe here at home. And um, I look forward to connecting with you again soon. And thanks also to our listeners for joining us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.